You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. Many of you, I am assuming for the first time, thank you very much for being here this morning. Hope your kids enjoyed VBS. Um, I should let you know it's a pretty rough group in here. I mean, I forget to shave one day, and that's all I hear. It's a grief. I forgot to shave this morning, and all I get is, "Way, can you afford some razors? All kinds of stuff. Actually, it started off with Allison. I didn't have time to shave early on, and then I thought, well, I'll just let it go for a little bit, and we'll see. But look, if it's your first time, thank you so much for being here. And thank you to the 68 volunteers. My goodness. Ben Grumbach this morning was smiling from ear to ear. And he's like, it's a great day. VBS is almost in the books. You know, and it's like, I'm like, yeah, it's kind of like the Lord on the creation week. You know, every day it was good. And on the last day of work, it was very good. (laughs) And he said, yeah, now time for rest. But I know every single one of them. Loved it, and we always love watching the kids uh, sing about the Lord in the ways that he did. Uh, We don't typically take as many offerings as you're going to be seeing us take today. We had the special at the envelope at the end. But on the last Sunday, in the end of the rows, on the last Sunday of the month, we take a special benevolence offering. It's appropriate day, and you'll see as we get to the text in just a little bit from John chapter 6, that we take... This offering that shares the love of Christ with those in need, both in our body and out of our body. So we'll have that offering at the end of the service this morning. And don't be thrown by so many different uh, passings of the plate and envelopes for you to to put in as well. Um, I just wanted to mention something I talked about last week, Ellie Wall. I actually had a kidney removed this week, so you want to be... Praying for Ellie. On the other hand, Jack Doyle says it's his first pain-free week uh, in many, many, many weeks, several months after open-heart surgery. So grateful for the Lord being with, uh, with us in all of the difficulties that we have. So I want to begin the message this morning by asking a question that may seem a little bit out of place on a Sunday morning at church. Do you believe in God? I'm going to guess most of you would say, yes, absolutely, I believe in God. And with that assumption, I'll ask another question. Who is God to you? Probably the question that we would like to ponder and would hope would be answered in the ways that we want is, Who do we want God to be? Interestingly enough, the Bible never seeks to present God as who we want him to be. Now, when we talk to other people, we have a tendency to do that. Let me tell you about this wonderful God that I worship and serve. Or um, when people... Just talk about God in general. Oh, God is so wonderful. And he is. All of those things are so true about him. But life comes at us in a lot of different ways. And sometimes we think, wow, he's not exactly who I thought he was. Most of us here at Grace Community Church would agree that if God does not make himself known to us, we cannot know him. I mean, if we seek to know or imagine or reason our way to God, we will inevitably land on an unbalanced view of God that ranges everywhere from severe or cruel and never pleased to disinterested and unconcerned to doting and and granting the deepest desires of our hearts at any particular whim that we indulge. When God turns out not to be who we have imagined him to be, we may doubt his goodness or even his existence. It's interesting, isn't it, that so many people are mad with a God they don't believe in. 
That's true. I mean, it's just the way it is. Oh, I don't believe in a God who would do this, 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 and this. In other words, the God we create in our own minds is as frail and fragile and flawed as our own personal understanding of him. We are several months into the Gospel of John, and the text today is John 6, 22 to 40. Now, there are a lot of places you might come in to the Gospel of John, and it'd be a little bit difficult to, to, to find a place, but this is not one of those days. The things that we're going to look at today are what Jesus said to, to, to people all the way through his ministry in explaining who he was and explaining God to the people. We have learned so far in this study that Jesus was not who people expected or wanted him to be. But to those who believed he was better than they could have ever hoped or imagined he would be. The miracles Jesus performed are called signs in John's gospel. And they were more about Jesus than they were about the people who were the beneficiaries of the miracles. Now that's a whole paradigm shift if you've never thought about that. But all of the miracles in the, in, in the Bible in the, in the Bible are to affirm that what God is saying through his prophets and through Jesus is true. So they were more about Jesus than they were who were the beneficiaries of the people. Uh, Jesus never performed miracles on demand. When people would say, hey, do a little miracle for us. Never did. Repeatedly we see Jesus pointing to himself and saying, this is not about a magic show. This is about belief. So such is the case when Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children in John 6, which was likely upwards of, of somewhere around 20,000 plus people. Ricky Lee preached a great sermon on that a couple of weeks ago, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And then uh, Sean Cross gave a nice little free speech last week. Uh, for, for those of you, I knew he was going somewhere, but that was really well delivered. If you haven't... You want to hear two great messages, go and listen to the podcast from the last two Sundays. Um, today's text, John 6, 22 to 40, will help us understand who Jesus presented himself to be to the world. But before we get to it, just a little refresher and a little background to help us understand the exchange, this particular exchange between Jesus and the people. When Jesus fed Thousands, we were told in the text that it was a time of the Passover feast. There are so many connections in John. In fact, as Ricky said a couple of weeks ago, this is the only, gospel, uh, only miracle that is recorded in all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the feeding of the 5,000. And there are things that we pick up from the others that point this all the way back to the Passover. It was green grass. The only time of the year that there's green grass in Palestine is that time of the year around the Passover. They were put into groups of tens, fifties, hundreds. Moses did the same thing to the people. Everything is pointing back to the Exodus themes. Passover, where the Paschal Lamb was, was, was killed and the people came out of slavery. And Jesus pointing toward Jesus' death and crucifixion. On the cross. So, so Jesus feeding the multitudes is rich with Exodus imagery. When God led, when Yahweh led the people out of Israel into the wilderness, they quickly realized uh, we didn't pack enough food for this trip. And God fed them, you recall, with manna, bread from heaven. The people thought perhaps Jesus was a, was a new and more improved version of Moses. He would feed them. So they pursued him. Not because their hearts were full from the sign that he had given them. That he was from God and was God by feeding the multitudes. But because, as Leon Morris said, their bellies were full. It's not that their hearts were full, their bellies were full. And their bellies were getting 
hungry again and they wanted Jesus to feed them. So that's the context for the conversation between Jesus and the people that we're going to encounter this morning and next week as well. This conversation goes on quite a ways. We're just looking at the first portion of it. Um, we are going to find one in this conversation who is greater than all the prophets and who is the full blessing of all God's promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of the feast. He is everything that people need. And we are in that category of great need for the Lord. And he offers himself to us today. So all the although the text covers verses 22 to 40 of John 6, we're going to read verses 35 through 40 for our initial reading, which begins with the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. We're going to talk about that more in the, in the coming weeks. After the reading, we'll work our way through the text and think about five important truths that the text calls us to embrace. It's our custom to stand out of respect for God's word as the scripture is read, so I'll ask you if you would. Please stand for John chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 35 through 40, and this is from the English Standard Version. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. By the way, this was the thing that really aggravated the people. This statement. I have come down from heaven. I, heaven, I'm not representing God. I'm not pointing to God. I am God who has come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What a promise. Let's pray. Father, we confess that in our own minds, uh, we have a picture of who we want you to be, but we also confess that we recognize that that picture of you is distorted by our own humanness and our own desires and hurts and wants. And so, Father, may we this day by faith embrace Jesus as we find him in the text. And may he become to us far better and sweeter than we had dreamed. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, be seated. A few weeks ago, when we were thinking about Mary and Martha, we talked about how everywhere Jesus went, he caused a stir. And probably very few places as much as here, when he fed upwards of 20,000 people, People, I mean, no wonder people were looking everywhere for him the day after what we would call a major miracle, but John, the apostle John, calls a sign. When they didn't find Jesus where he had been, they took off across the lake and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So far, so good. When they found Jesus, they said, hey, wait just a minute. Boat came over. The boat with your disciples came over last night. You weren't in the boat, but now you're here. When they said, when did you get here? Probably they meant, how did you get here? Notice the day before, they had called Jesus king. They wanted to make him a king, but now they're back to calling him teachers. Look, teacher, look, this may be one of the reasons that 
that any time Jesus would heal someone and, and people would get all excited, he would say, look, don't tell anybody about this. Anytime a crowd gathered around someone who was doing something significant, that was a threat to the local authority. No matter which King Herod it was, there were several King Herods that we read about in the, in the Gospels. And, and every one of them was very insecure. And so if a crowd gathers, that's a threat to his authority. So Jesus is like, look, don't make a big deal out about this. It's not that Jesus was afraid to die. It's just that he knew the will of the Father was to die in Jerusalem, not as a martyr at the head of a rebellion. Because it looked like a rebellion if people were gathering, saying, King, make him king, feed us. I know you're going to defeat the Romans. So Jesus' miracles were not intended to draw crowds, although of course the crowds came to see these things that they heard about. But their, their primary purpose was to point to Jesus as the one whom Moses and the prophets about whom they had written. In verse 26, we find Jesus, as we frequently do, find him ignoring the people's questions about how he had arrived without transportation. Instead, he went straight to the heart of the matter, which was their hearts. He said, let's, let's think at a, a little bit of a deeper level. I'm not here to satisfy your curiosity. I'm here to change your heart. Jesus identified their motive for following him as a selfish, following him as a selfish expectation that he would meet their needs and make life easier for them. Look, we wouldn't get that excited about someone feeding us from a, a, a handful of loaves of bread and, and, and a couple of fish because we have jobs, we can go to the store, we can buy any food that we want, and we're very picky about what we eat. And the older we get, the pickier we get about the brands that we buy, you know, and stuff. We can afford it, right? So we do it. But these people didn't know where the next meal was coming from. So it's not like they were just like, hey, yeah, this would be great if you just feed us every day. This was a, this was a serious need that they had. And, and it's not that Jesus was unwilling to meet their needs. Indeed, he fed the people out of a heart of compassion. And the Lord's Prayer teaches us to ask God for daily provision of food. But if an easy life distracts from the need for eternal life, then we'll find that our priorities, sooner or later it'll make sense to us, that our priorities are in the wrong place. A criticism of Jesus' followers is often in our day, and I talk about this with people a lot, a criticism that people have toward us is that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. We care so much about singing praise the Lord and doing the things that we do in church on Sunday that we really don't care about the needs of others. Actually, that's what the benevolence offering is about. We do care deeply about the needs of others. And scripture calls us over and over to take care of the poor and the, and the unfortunate, those who are less fortunate than we. Whenever we have opportunity to do good to people, we should and good for people. But Jesus' chief criticism of the people in John 6 seems to be that they cared so much about physical needs that they gave little thought to the spiritual food that endures to eternal life. Not many of us are in danger of thinking too much about eternity. Jesus gives us, just as he gave the people in John 6, spiritual food. And the Father fully endorses what Jesus does in this chapter. It's not to say that we shouldn't care about others' needs. Again, oh my, the, the admonition for us to care well for others is great. But sooner or later, every one of us must be confronted with the reality 
that our eternal relationship with Jesus is more important than our temporal needs, no matter how urgent they may seem. And we can only respond as we're called to respond by faith. And sometimes our faith is weak, right? That's why I prayed a while ago, I believe or we believe help our unbelief. What in your life, what is it in your life that has higher priority than Jesus? One of the great things about preaching on Sunday mornings is that I get to be in the text all week. One of the difficult things about preaching on Sunday morning is that I am in the text every week. I've had to deal with this all week long. No matter what is first place in your life, you will get it back and more. If you put... Jesus in first place. And you say, no, 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 you just don't understand. Jesus would say, just trust me. Trust me. Make me first place. And you will see. Maybe not in this life. But if we really believe, what is eternity? What is our life in eternity? You can't even measure it as so small. It's, it doesn't even appear as any kind of a dot on the page. And yet this life is a very important part of our eternal existence. And when eternity comes, for those who believe in Jesus, we're going to be so grateful that the Lord enabled us to believe him at the kinds of levels that he's calling us to in this text. If in this life we ignore the Lord because we must make more money or we must be in a relationship that we know is unbiblical, but we have to, or we must pursue our political and social passions, which coincidentally happen to be the culture's political and social passions, at the present time, or we must binge watch shows fairly awful slips. Often, just well, we do binge watch some awful shows, don't we? That was a Freudian slip. Um, but when we are watching, we're binge watching awful shows. It says something about where life is for us. Even if it's good shows, it's just easier to escape reality. And believe me, I understand. I understand when. The Lord took Linda Talley home over 11 years ago. There was a long time. I didn't want to think about anything sad. I just wanted to be distracted. I get it. I get it. And the Lord understands those times for us. But then he brings us along to put our focus onto him. Make room. For Jesus, for eternal faults, for biblical hope. And biblical hope has little to do with life improving or getting better. Biblical hope is our focus on eternity and believing Jesus at the levels that we follow him no matter what. The people asked Jesus what seemed to be an appropriate question. question hey, look, what are we supposed to do? What kind of works should we do for this kind of food? If you're telling me we have to do certain works, then we'll do it for the food that you're going to give us. Jesus' response is the heart of the gospel. No, you misunderstand. It's not about what you can do. It's about believing that God sent Jesus from heaven. And about entering into intimate and personal relationship with him. We're going to see that next week at a, at a very deep level. John 6.29 is an important verse 
to know. If you're wondering, have I done enough good things to get to heaven? It's not about doing good things to get to heaven. It's not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus has done. And Jesus constantly was pointing people to himself. Just believe in me. Believe in me. Believe what? That I am sent from God. And one day, they're like, this makes no sense. He's been crucified. But then he rose again. And it all began to make sense to the disciples and then to the world. Jesus, salvation is a gift, just like Jesus said in verse 27. You are called to believe. To believe in Jesus means to trust him with all your heart. Let me say this slowly. Trust Jesus with all your heart. The large majority of you in this room, I know that you believe this. You believe that Jesus is your only hope of eternal life. He's the only hope of heaven. You've repented of your sins and you've acknowledged both privately and publicly that you believe that when Jesus died on the cross, just like the, the children told us this morning and the workers told us, he was bearing our sin and God was pouring out his wrath on sin that we had committed and he was receiving punishment that we deserved. Jesus endured on that cross the equivalent of an eternity in hell for our sins. Do you believe that? But something has hurt you deeply. Something has scared you. And it's troubling you greatly. You feel that you're just on the verge of losing control. And in fact, it's your need for control that often keeps you from throwing yourself fully on Jesus. It, it, haven't you seen this happen in your life? Where you know you need to trust the Lord, but you're scared to because I can still control it a little bit. And then finally, one day, you can do nothing about this except trust the Lord. You know, you hear, you've heard about the pastor that, or the doctor that came to the patient in the hospital and he said, well, all we can do is trust the Lord. And she said, oh my, has it come to that? You know, that's where we get to that place. But when God brings us to that place, and we rest in him, there is a beautiful peace that makes no sense. Is it worse than it was yesterday? Yes, it was. But the good thing is that I can do nothing about this. And I'm just trusting the Lord. And oh, Jesus is better than I ever dreamed he would be. Maybe... Jesus didn't turn out who you thought he was. But when he was who you thought he was and everything was going well, where was the need for faith? Where was the need for trust? When you trust, that's when you enter into deep relationship. With you, And a little bit later in the text, he's going to say, look, it's not so much you holding on to Jesus. It's him holding on to you. Aren't you thankful for that? Right after Jesus told the people that the gift of eternal life is theirs, if they will just believe for him, believe in him, they ask him for a sign in verse 30. Give us a sign. I mean, show us you really care. Feed us every day. I mean, look, we all know what Moses did in the, in, in the desert. He gave us our ancestors manna to eat every day. So how can you expect us to follow you if you can't do the same? Come on, show us who you are. Can you imagine such demands coming one day after Jesus had fed 20,000 people with a little bread and a little fish. 
He fed 20,000 people, and now people are saying, okay, show us what you got. Even though the people had not specifically taunted Jesus by comparing him with Moses, their admiration for Moses and their skepticism of Jesus was implicit in their demands. They were making the comparison, and Jesus knew it. He called them out. He quickly reminded them that it wasn't Moses who fed them. It was God. Wait. Was Jesus saying that just as God had fed the Israelites, God had fed the thousands the day before? Was Jesus saying that he was God? The people were skeptical. Sir, by all means, let us always have this bread. Prove to us that you are who you say you are by feeding us every day. And then we'll believe. How many days do you think Jesus would have had to fed them before they would believe? I mean, what if he had fed them for three months and then stopped? What do you think their response would have been? The same, right? We get the opportunity to trust the Lord after three months, after three years, after 30 years. And then all of a sudden, something that has never happened before happens. Think about what's going on when Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They're saying, okay, well then feed us. And he's like, no, no, no. You're missing it. I'm not talking about food that you can eat. The claim and the promise of eternal life in Jesus seemed ridiculous to the people, as the rest of the chapter will reveal. So Jesus, again, calls them out in verse 36. When people say, it would just be so much easier if I could see the Lord right here. If Jesus were in our midst, it would be easier. No, it wouldn't. They saw him. They saw him feed 20,000 people with five fish, five bread, loaves of bread, and two fish. And they didn't believe. The great news of verse 37 is that there will be some who do believe. And Jesus promises he will never cast them out. Much more about this next week and much more about the I am statements of Jesus as we continue through John. Including another panel that we'll have with elders up here discussing the big picture truths of John's gospel. So just before we make application from the text, I want to read verses 38 to 40 again. And I want to do so deliberately, and I want to encourage you to think about what Jesus is saying in light of all that we have read so far before, and let the word speak to you. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This is where our faith is built, reading the word and believing. Consider the state of your heart and your hurts and your losses and your insecurities and needs. believe Jesus. I don't say it lightly. I know your pain. Believe Jesus. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Does that sound like Jesus' words to Nicodemus? As the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up so Those who look on the Son of Man will live. Though the Son of Man must be lifted up, and those who believe will live. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So five thoughts from the text for us to contemplate 
that God has given to us this day, beginning with, God is able to do anything. And by the way, Jesus is God. A couple of weeks ago, that was the title of the message, Jesus is God. It could be the title of every message of John that we're preaching from John. Over and over and over we see this truth. When the people saw Jesus feed the multitudes, they knew that he was special. What they refused to acknowledge was that he was and is God. And that believing in him was more important than having their material needs met. So is God able to give you a job or cure you from your physical ailments or repair a broken relationship or conquer your fear? Is God able to do those things? Yes, he's able to do anything. And many of us could not begin to recall the ways that his faithfulness <coughs> has been shown to us through the years. But when God meets our needs in the early days, very quickly, in the early days of following him, oftentimes it's this pattern. He meets our needs very quickly. And then later... He doesn't answer at the same speed that he used to answer our prayers. So consequently, we begin to think, what's up with that? Is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with God? I suspect that there's something wrong with God. Because I'm told repeatedly, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't understand why God is not doing for me now what he has done for me in the past or what he is doing for my neighbor who talks all the time about God has shown his love for her by meeting her needs. What about me? Well, that's the focus of the second point. Just because the Lord meets your needs in a specific way today does not mean that he will do exactly the same next time. And the fact that he doesn't do the same next time does not mean that he is unfaithful or that he is any less God or that he is any less good. He never changes. There's design and purpose for the way that he brings us along in life. It's sad, isn't it? Guilty. When we praise God for answering our prayers one day and then chastise him for not answering them in the same way the next day. And it's difficult, isn't it? Job's initial response was perfect. But the longer he sat and thought about it, the more he questioned God. And he said, I just don't understand this. Heard someone say many years ago that the, the lesson of Job is that God is big enough to handle our questions. That's true. In fact, as far as we know, as far as I know, there is no other religion in which the scriptures of that religion has people complaining to their God. We get to complain to him at high levels. And he, he's, he can take it. And he's not angry with us. But I think here is the bigger lesson of Job. If you're going to complain to God, put your big boy or big girl britches on because he's going to meet you someday. He's going to tell us who he is. And he does it directly, but he does it with deep love and compassion for God is not obligated to answer our prayers in the ways that we pray them, nor to explain himself. In fact, aren't you grateful that God has not answered every prayer exactly as you have prayed? Just listen to Garth Brooks. Thanks God for, thank God for unanswered prayers. Probably not a Christian, but he's, got, he's right on that one. God wants us to trust him even when he chooses not to do a miracle, which leads to a far greater place in our hearts than having life go as we want it to go without needing to trust him at high levels. And look how messed up we are 
in our society as a whole. Look, folks, trying to build the kingdom in this place is not only misguided, it's dangerous. Utopian impulses always lead to violence. If it can't be right, we've got to make it right. There are people who are... No. Trust God. Number three. When you elevate the physical above the spiritual, you're heading for disappointment. Life is hard enough as it is. But as Christians, we know this intuitively, that the spiritual is more important than the material. And yet, do you think our day of immediate access an immediate solving of problems increases our tendency to elevate the material above the spiritual? Or in demanding right now from God what we want instead of recognizing the beauty of his plan and the already not yet nature of our relationship with God? Do you think that this day impacts that? I think it does. My desire when Linda was diagnosed with a brain tumor was let's just keep her long, alive long enough until they figure this out. I didn't realize how, how far away they were from figuring it out. But we expect everything, everything to be able to be fixed. And when it's not fixed, our tendency is to say, God, I'm disappointed with you. You know, I think I know enough to never say that, but honestly, I believe, I feel it in my heart a lot. I think we all struggle with it. God, this just isn't the way I expected it would be. Number four. When you prioritize your union with Christ above the personal, then you're headed for true joy. This only comes through faith. And it's equally true, as already stated, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The more time you spend in the word, the more your faith will be increased. The more you elevate Jesus above your earthly cares and disappointments the more likely you will be to assume a posture of rest and to find true joy, even if you recognize that the joy is not going to come until the last day when everything is made right and everything will be just as we always thought it would be. That's probably one of the reasons that we struggle so much is because God says, if you believe me, this is what will be. But he's talking about in the future. And a lot of times we want that right now. And we demand it right now. But as we rest in the Lord, and say, even when we say, I can't make sense of this. But I believe. Then we assume a posture of rest. And we find true joy even if happiness eludes us. No suffering of yours is wasted. And all the suffering here will correspond to the, to the joy there. When we trust Jesus at this level, we will discover as we mature that Jesus is not who we thought he was. He's better than we could have hoped or imagined. Uh, this is easy to believe in the early days of our relationship with Jesus. It's easy to believe when we sit down alongside the masses and he feeds us with just a little. When he does things that are clearly indicated indicative of his love for me personally. But when Satan blindsides us and we're forced to deal with pain that we never imagined possible, 
that is also a time of opportunity for fellowship with Jesus at levels we never imagined possible. That's what Paul seems to indicate in Philippians 3 and 2 Corinthians 12. And by the way, Paul went through periods of depression. I absolutely, I know he went through periods of depression. You get to, the longer you stay in the word, you get a sense of the personalities of the people. Timothy was a really fearful. Apollos was a great, um, the Apollo, a little brash, and maybe the author of Hebrews, I, I think maybe. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul was very firm. He went through incredible suffering. But there were times that he suffered deep depression. Then he recognized that it's in the midst of this suffering that Jesus is present with me in ways that I would never know apart from the suffering. This week, one of our members underwent some rather frightening medical tests. On the day of her test, she read from every moment holy. Write that down. Every moment holy. Let it be burned in your mind. It's a book of liturgies written by McKelvey, Douglas McKelvey uh, from the rabbit room, the Andrew Peterson guys. By the way, Andrew Peterson's coming back next year. Is that right? We're working on it. We're working on it. Okay. We're hoping to get Andrew Peterson uh, back here. But every moment holy, such a beautiful blessing to many of us. I would have the picture on the screen, but my computer is being repaired and I'm trying to piece things together from two or three different sources and devices, I should say. And me and devices, that's a bad combination. But our member read this liturgy. Oh, she doesn't care. Barbara Stevens was the one. She shared this with us. She read the liturgy written for one who awakes on the morning of a medical procedure. So I wanted to read a portion of that liturgy because even though it's written for those of us when we're facing medical concerns, it, it deals with all the kinds of pains that we've discussed this morning and lots of other pain that, that you're struggling with that's not been identified this morning. So this truth applies in so many areas of our lives. Quote, whether the end result of this procedure brings news that is good, bad, or uncertain. And this is the key line in all of this that we're going to read. Nothing that is essential or eternal will have changed. Do you see this in Jesus' interactions with the people? You're, 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 you're missing the wrong thing. Nothing that is essential or eternal will have changed. My great hope in Jesus is secure. Let me rest in that. At the end of this day, I will still be your child, utterly dependent on you, utterly loved. At the end of this day, my life will yet be hidden with Christ, even as it now is. I will remain an heir to the promise that this imperfect mortal body, though it faces temporary decline, will one day be swallowed up in a glorious immortality. We pray for good outcomes from this procedure. This is a truth, is it not? Even though we're called to trust God, he gives us, he gives us this beautiful promise that we can come to him with anything. And sometimes he says yes in a beautiful way. We pray for good outcomes, pleading that you would be mindful of our mortal frailties. But we know that regardless of the tidings to come, you are tender and present and sovereign over all circumstances. And what is more, you love us fiercely and eternally. 
Therefore, I would trust you to lead me well along the paths of any wild and perilous country. You are my shepherd. This day will hold no surprises for you. Let me rest in that. Amen. And let's pray. The students have been learning all week when life is good, God is good. When life is bad, when life is difficult, when life is challenging, God is good. Jesus, in our text today, makes no apologies for being God or for not being exactly who he wants us to be. But he calls us to believe. And as the Father has drawn us to Jesus and given us faith, may we exalt and glorify him even in our pain and uncertainty. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beautiful plan of God that allowed sinners Though we are to stand in your presence, thank you for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place. And the last word not being a word of rebuke, but of tender love and care. And for the spirit bringing comfort to our hearts when comfort ought not to be found. Confess our need for you. We pray that Jesus would be all to us that you have called us to believe at that level and for him to be. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.